This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. So uh, I want to share this with you. Just that last song, man, it's such a good song. That last song as we're finishing up, the Lord just gave me a word for you guys in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. It just came just right as we were finishing up and, and, and very strongly felt like I needed to share it with you. So if, if you want to turn there to Titus chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we'll, we'll look at verse 1 too. But, but this, is, this is the word that just came to mind. But as for you... Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. This is the word of the Lord. Flip over in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Now, I want to remind you all that, that this is a study focused on the seven churches of Revelation. So while we will be looking at the introduction to Revelation, we're not going to be spending an incredible amount of time here, even though we very well can. Revelation is one of the most contested books in the Bible in history. There's people on both sides of the spectrum who are so dogmatic about their position that they will not be moved. And they could prove it in, incredibly to their ability. And there's other people who are so scared that they, never, they don't even want to come near it because they don't want to touch it. There are four schools of thought, really, we're not going to get into tonight, but in interpretation of the Bible, the only thing that we re really need to know and understand is that the book of Revelation is God's word to us for today. It's God's word for us now. And there's profound truth in looking at the times that they were living in and then comparing it to those times that we're in now. So if you'd like to follow along in chapter 1 and you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have Isaiah hand you a Bible if anybody needs a Bible. Up here, Isaiah. Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Shame on you. One thing that I've come to learn is that the more that I study God's word, I find, the more I find that I can learn. 
it, it's not maybe so much the less I understand, but it, it just, as things open up, it's like, for lack of a better illustration, it's like an onion, you know, just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And you get to the middle of the onion, that little part, and you pop that thing in your mouth, what happens? Zing! I like onions, so I'll eat it. But it's, it's strong. And as we dig into God's Word and we go in, we find that it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And we realize that it's so simple, yet it's so profound that we struggle in, in conveying its message sometime. One of the things that I've come to find out and, and see is that uh, the more dogmatic a person becomes about things in the Scripture, the less I think or realize that they actually know. You can't really be super dogmatic, super legalistic about things in God's Word because there are some things that are given to us. There are other things that are being started to or starting to be revealed. And then there's other things where God says, hey, this is going to happen. I don't want you to know about it. Like the seven thunders. Seal them up. You know, there's still people trying to figure out what the seven thunders are. Th seven thunders are. Stop it. Just allow God's work to, word to speak clearly when he wants to speak. Receive what he has for you and let him reveal it in its time. I think of the disciples and what a bunch of crazy people they were and how they got so fanatical about certain things where they were willing to call down fire from heaven and burn people up because they were so sure of their position. They were willing to have their mom go talk to Jesus to be set up in, in the highest parts of the kingdom. And then Jesus is resurrected from the dead and is standing there before them. And he said, I told you guys that I was going to die I was going to be crucified, that I was going to resurrect from the dead. And here I am now. And, and what does the word tell us? They doubted. Even with Jesus the Christ standing right in front of them. Imagine you got to walk and talk and live with Jesus for at least three full years. Some people got a little bit more. You got to listen to him. You got to see him. You got to touch him. Can anybody imagine what, what kind of day would be better than hanging out with Jesus? What kind of day would be better than that? And they got it day in and day out. They followed him. And listen, they still didn't get it. And as much as we want to get everything, we can try as hard as we can to press in as much as we can to receive as much as we can from him, but, but we're not going to be perfected in this life. We're not going to have all the answers. And some of you are going through struggles right now. You know what a go-to struggle for me is? You are struggling so that God can comfort you. Therefore, comfort others with the comfort that you have received from the Holy Spirit. Amen. You seek me, I'm going to comfort you. And then you receive or go through an experience in life that you are certifiably qualified to speak into somebody else's life. About a miscarriage or infertility or cancer or medical conditions or children or whatever the case may be. 
God wants you as you go through life and you seek those things, God wants you to be submitted to him, to receive comfort from him so that he can use you for his glory. So I say that to say this, there is no reason that any of us should settle doctrinally, and I'm, telling, I'm saying this to myself, we should settle dogmatically on any position of the book of Revelation. We should hold it lightly. This is God's truth and some is revealed and it says it's revealed to you. Some of it we just don't know. But God, what do you have for us today? What do you have for us right now? What can we know to be true that's in your word that corresponds with other scriptures and is going to be teaching for us for our edification and the edification of your church? Chapter 1, verse 1, let's pray. Father, we come to you one more time as we open your word and we just ask God that as we open up the Apocalypto, as we open up Revelation, that you would do just that, that you would reveal Jesus to us, that you would reveal your heart to us for today, God. And that we would have understanding, that we want to have understanding, but we wouldn't grow proud in our estimation. But we would be humble enough to submit ourselves to you, to receive the blessing that you promise we'll get when we consider your book, this letter of Revelation. So God, open our eyes, give us the illumination, the understanding of your Holy Spirit. Teach us and allow us to be encouraged so that we can go and bless and encourage others in Jesus' name. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Not to stay here too long, but on the first verse, what's the first thing that we see? The revelation. As I said, revelation is also apocalypse. How often do you guys get a good fuzzy feeling in your stomach when you hear the word apocalypse? Not very often. You think apocalypse, you think judgment, you think the end of the world. So we church it up for you. We'll call it revelation instead of apocalypse because that's what the original word is. And all apocalypse means is an uncovering or an unveiling or a revealing of something. In Croatian, uh, apocalypse is, or, or revelation is otkrivenje. And what that means is an opening. So you see how different languages can, can translate it different ways. But, but in essence, it's, it's, a, it's a revealing of something. And here we see that this is the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. What scripture should do for us from the beginning to the end is point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ points to the Father. Look in scripture. This is always how it goes. It's a big circle. Jesus points to the Father. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. And Jesus po- forgot the third one. Jesus Father. Am I, am I cutting out? Jesus points to the Father. The Father manifests himself to Jesus. That's how it always goes. So the unveiling or the opening or the revealing is of the person of Jesus Christ. Another way that they would use this word in antiquity would be uh, an apocalypse, uh, apocalypsis or an uncovering of something. Think about when these masterpieces were being made like Michelangelo and 
and Donatello, Leonardo. I mean, they all made masterpieces, and they were masters. It's not like they were out in the open squares doing this stuff for everybody to see. They were in a room. It was covered, and it was, there was an awaiting of the unveiling, the time when the work was brought to completion, to perfection. And then that moment when there was an uncovering and everybody would come to see, everybody would gather around to see the, the unveiling, the uncovering. I was just walking around down at Town Square the other day and I realized that, you guys noticed that in Vegas we're like in a boom right now? There's construction everywhere. There's new stores opening, new restaurants. It's crazy. God has given us an, an incredible opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with people. These new people coming over 36% are from California. We'll send them back. <laughs> Just kidding. Love you guys. But as you walk around, you see these stores, and they're all covered up very well. They're boarded up. They don't want you to get any peek because they're going to have a what? They're going to have a grand opening, an unveiling, an uncovering, a showing. And everything is being done for a purpose. And everything is being done for a reason. And maybe you can't perceive it now. Maybe you can't understand it now. But it's all going to come together. And isn't that the most glorious way for God to conclude the last book in his word? That there's going to be a revelation. This is the completion. This is how all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Yes, this is the purpose. This is the point. This is what God's plan was all along. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. It's interesting. If you look at that, who gave the revelation to who? Do you guys see in that verse? It says, God, the Father, gave him, capital H, the Son, the revelation to do what? Give to his servants. Which is interesting, and, we, and, and I bring that up to point out that, that the, the Trinitarian relationship with man and God is still in effect, even to the point where they're talking about the, we're talking about the end times, or the ultimate culmination. Apocalypse for the world means judgment. Apocalypse for us means glory. It's the big picture. It's the whole enchilada. It's the final piece that brings everything together. And God gave it to Jesus to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. You can circle those or underline them. I circle them. Shortly take place. Now, there's a few different ways you can look at that. Either he means that it's going to happen soon, or uh, many people believe, and in, in other parts of Revelation that talk about it as well, believe it's more of a, when it starts to happen, it's going to happen quickly. I believe both, and this is why. You are an eternal being. You are an eternal being, and you're going to live forever. How long is a couple thousand years? It's nothing this ties into our study that we're going to start this coming Sunday on the book of Ecclesiastes. This is, what the, this is what the author keeps saying over and over again. He's saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Spoiler alert, on Sunday I'm going to talk about how that word for vanity actually doesn't mean vanity the way the English word means it. It means, it means vapor or mist or smoke. It means something that's there for just an instant and it's gone. 
And you can ask people who experience death or who experience disease or experience the, the adverse effects of time on this life. It's like one day they're fine and the next thing they know, the next day, nothing's okay. It's like that. Everything's gone or everything's changed. But our life is like, and, and the older that I get, I don't know if this is true. Maybe I can get some, some, some testifies and some amens and some hallelujahs. But the older I get, it seems like time is speeding up. Thank you. When I was young, when I was my oldest son's age, when I was 12, I felt like it took an eternity to get through one day. I got to wake up at five o'clock and get ready for school and take the bus for an hour and a half to get to school. And then I was at school all day and I didn't like school. And then I took an hour and a half for me to get home. I lived in Pahrump. So this is a true story. Five o'clock, hour and a half on the bus to school, hour and a half back and the whole day there. We got home when the sun was getting ready to come down and it took forever. I'm like, well, I can't wait till I'm 13. And when I turn 13, I'm like, I can't wait till I'm 14. And then when I turn 14, I can't wait till I'm and now I'm like, oh, Lord, I wish I was 30. I wish I was 25. I wish I can slow time down. Now there are, to my brother's point, David, there's not enough hours in the day to do all of the things that need to be done. Time goes by so quickly and things change so quickly. So, How long is a couple thousand years or so? Not long. For God, you can see where his heart of urgency is coming from, can't you? He's like, hey, guys, get this together. Get it right. Hey, hey, figure this out. Hey, get back on track. Come on, stop messing around, guys. You don't want to be ashamed at my appearing. Come on, let's get it together. Come on, come on. Why? Because it's going to be over in an instant. And we forget many times that our God is the God outside of linear time and space. Because our days are so filled with things, we forget that he's outside looking at it. So the same day he's looking at you go through your struggles today, right now, he sees the end of your life. The same moment. And he says, listen, you got to do something. You got to move. You got to cry out to me. You got to ask. You got to seek. You got to knock. I want to respond to you. I want to honor this relationship. I want it to be two-sided. I don't want it to just be one-sided. I want you to live your faith. I want you to not just be the picture. I want you to be the thing that you say that you are. Because when it happens, it's going to happen quickly. And when the process starts to happen of the end times, it is also going to come to completion very rapidly. If a thousand years, if 2,000 years is nothing for God, then how about the tribulation? He's like pulling his hair out. This is going to be over before you guys know it. You're still messing around. You're still bummed out that you missed that sporting event. You, you didn't, your TiVo conked out and you missed the game. Listen, be careful. Time is short, and the revelation of Jesus Christ in the literal sense is going to happen soon. And soon is not on my watch. Soon is on his watch. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. 
So the father gives the son the plan who's able to give it to his servants. And then there's a delivery sent to the servants. And and it's delivered and signified by the angel to John. We know John, the beloved, was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. A little jelly. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. There's another imperative. The time is near, guys. The time is near. And here I'm going to give you revelation. I'm going to give you direction. I'm going to, I'm going to open up to you what's going to be happening and what's going to come to pass. But let's, let's look at the first blessed. There are seven blesseds in the book of Revelation. We're probably not going to get to look at them all. But it's like the seven beatitudes of Jesus. Here's the seven blessings of Revelation. The first one is found here in chapter 1, verse 3. And it's blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. When I was a young Christian, I couldn't have been more than a couple months old. I was fascinated with the book of Revelation. And I read this promise of God. And there's very few like it. And I read this promise and it said, blessed are you, the special blessing to those of you who do two things. Those who read it and those who hear it. It's one thing to read something, but it's another thing to hear something. You guys know what that means? Guys, you guys don't have ears to hear. You got ears, but you, don't, you ain't got ears for hearing. It's going in one ear and out the other. And he says, not only are, are those blessed who read it, but those who uh, are blessed that, that, that receive it, that hear it. And I read that, and for some reason, it just fired me up. And I'm like, I get a special blessing from God, and all I have to do is read his word. So I made a covenant with myself and the Lord. And I said, Lord, if this blessing is a compounding blessing, then I commit to reading the entire book of Revelation on a daily basis for as long as I can. And every single night before I went to bed, I read the entire book of Revelation to get a special blessing from the Lord. And I started dreaming about dragons and weird women in the heavens. No, I'm just kidding. But it's true. It's true. Our eyes will be opened up. We have an illumination from the Holy Spirit. And, and what I think the, the book of Revelation does for us, you can jot this down if you're taking notes. It's a big P. What the book of Revelation does for us is it gives us perspective. And when you have perspective about today, you can live life better tomorrow. You can live life better today. But it puts the whole, the whole picture together. God loves us. There's still a communication with us. There's a revelation. It's coming through his son, Jesus Christ. Recognize that. That's the prescribed method. He wants us to understand. These things are going to happen quickly. There's a blessing for those who read and hear. And then there's a third thing. And keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It's one thing to say you believe something, but then another to actually do it. And I find this is probably one of the bigger issues in the churches today. Man, I love that thing that Tommy said this morning. Did you guys hear that? That thing with the camel was dynamite. I'm stealing that thing. His dad, one of those dad life lessons, his dad said to him, hey, Tommy, you know what a 
animal with uh, humps, the two humps on its back and legs and, and a camel. And, and, and I forget how I, the thing went. But you guys remember? Hey, remember what, you, what, what is something that has two humps on its back? It lives in the desert. It's got four legs. It's tall. It's got a big head. People ride it in there. What is it? Not a camel. And, and, and not a camel. Thank you, Chris. And it's not a camel. What is it? It's a picture of a camel. It's one thing to look like something, but it's another thing to actually be that thing. And there's a lot of people that look like Christians, but they don't act like Christians. So those who read it, those who hear it, and those who keep, which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and faithful firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now I want you to notice a few things with me. First of all, he gives grace and peace to the hearers and he's speaking of the, the churches. Seven is the number of completion or finality, bringing everything together. The book of Revelation is known as the book of sevens. I, could, I, I listed out all the different sevens in Revelation, and we would not have time to even read through all of them, all the sevens. So it's the completion. It's the totality of God's plan coming to pass. And specifically, he wants the churches to understand and realize what God's will is and, and what, what, what this looks like. So, so he, he begins with saying, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Speaking of the eternity, eternality of God. God's eternal. He's not affected by the past, the present, or the future. And he who speaks to you is he who stands in that reality. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ is also, if you're taking notes or underlining or circling, the blood of Jesus Christ is also a reoccurring theme in the book of Revelation. You know, back many years ago, I heard the term um, that my friends were going to a seeker-friendly church. And I, and I said, what does that mean, seeker-friendly church? And they said, well, we don't, we don't say or do anything um, offensive because there's people who are seeking and we don't want to offend them or, or push them away. So, so we've gone through and taken out a bunch of stuff that church usually talks about so that, that it's less offensive. And I said, well, give me an example. Okay, well, one example is, is blood. You know, people talk about the blood of Jesus. So we took that out. And we never talk about or bringing up the blood because blood grosses people out and it puts people off and it could put people away. And I'm like, you're taking the blood of Jesus out of the gospel? That's like the gospel. The blood of Jesus is the whole gospel. It's the reason that we can have a relationship with God is the blood of Jesus. Seeker friendly people, you guys are crazy. And the word of God all often, regularly, just like we looked at today in our communion service, reminds us of the blood of Jesus. Because you can meditate on the blood of Jesus Christ and know that your blood is safe. Because the blood was a form of payment. 
And because he paid with his blood that which you cannot pay with your own blood, you are safe by the blood of Jesus Christ. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I love these verses also in Hebrews, um, some other parts of the scripture that talk about, uh, talks about us being made kings and priests. What does a king represent? If somebody said you were a king, I don't know why it bothers me, but people in the world, they say that, you know, about their spouses. She's my queen. He's my king. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But, but do, you know what, do you know what the status of a king actually represents? Absolute authority. Authority. And the, the priesthood represents rightness or connectedness with somebody, which is to God. And we are going to be made into a kingdom of kings and priests. What ultimately is your biggest enemy? We covered this a few weeks ago in our First Corinthians study, First Corinthians chapter 15. If you remember, what is your biggest enemy? Public enemy number one. You guys remember? Death. The resurrection of the body is the final straw. Oh, death, where is your sting? And we as Christians can live with death having some kind of authority over us or us in the way that it should be. We actually have authority over death. We're not affected by the, by the threats that death tries to give us. We're not affected by, by sin the way that it that used to affect us. And he says, I want to place you guys in a place of authority where, where nothing else can come against you. Now, on a daily basis, we struggle with the realization of sin and death. On a daily basis, whether we know it or not. We're affected by it. But imagine living in a place where that's not even something that enters into your head. You'd be ruling and reigning like kings with God. No authority over us except for him, being the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this priesthood, there is, a, there is a, an Old Testament reference that I wanted to look at in Jeremiah chapter 31 that talks about how the new covenant will be us receiving hearts of flesh and, and uh, no man will, will say to his neighbor, hey, no God, for they shall all know me. It's a prophecy of the fulfillment, the, the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus' blood where everybody will have, be able to have a relationship with God the Father. And it won't be segregated or you won't have to go through a mediator or a priesthood that is by one man, one priest, Jesus Christ that reconciled us all in totality to God and in having that relationship with God, we exercise what he intended at our creation. Since the Garden of Eden. And he made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion Forever and ever, he has the ultimate dominion over all things. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. This would have been, uh, was problematic for me. I didn't really understand what this meant, you know, as I was reading every night. 
I think I did it for uh, a, a few weeks or a month or so, reading through Revelation every night to get the special blessing. And I get to this part, I'm like, man, I don't understand how he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And he talks about that in the Gospels and he says, this is where I'm going to come back. Even they who pierced him. There's going to be finality in the return of Jesus Christ that, that everybody is going to experience, the dead and the living, the power and presence of God's coming and fulfillment of his promises on the earth. And everybody's going to get to take part in that and see that. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Do you know typically why we mourn before God, especially as the sons of men? Why do we mourn before God? Because we don't want God's will and purpose fulfilled in our lives. We want our own will and purpose fulfilled in our life. And oh, Jesus represents absolute obedience to God, our Father and Creator. I was thinking about this, and I didn't develop it as much as I wanted to, but I started writing this like little uh, thing out about the, the will of God and Jesus' obedience to God the Father. And I was thinking, and it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. It wasn't Jesus that loved you so much that he went and died on the cross for your sins. It wasn't. And that's what we talk about, and that's what we say, but it really wasn't, was it? It was God's will. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Not Jesus so loved the world that he left heaven to come be with us. God so loved the world to demonstrate what sacrifice and obedience looked like. And the son projected absolute obedience back to the father. And it was because of God the father's love for you that Jesus the son in perfect obedience to him went to the cross. And that's a beautiful picture. If we can wrap our head around it or we can start to uh, clearly lay it out a little bit more, it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with God as well. It's more based on a obedience to God than on a sacrifice to God. Every other world religious system on the planet focuses on sacrifice. I don't care who you are, Buddhist, Hindu, um, Mormons, Catholics, I'm not trying to offend anybody tonight. No matter who you are or what you are, the emphasis will be on sacrificing to God. When God does not want your sacrifices, God desires your obedience to him. Because absolute obedience signifies and illustrates trust in somebody. And if we absolutely trust God, then there's no reason we would ever question whether we should be obedient to him. But the accuser, of, the accuser of the brethren is the one who questions trust. He's the one that questions obedience to the Father. And he's the one that says, you know, hey, just offer a sacrifice instead. I'll do the best I can, God. Isn't that really like what it boils down to? I'll do the best I can, which is me offering something for you, uh, to you, but it's not actually what you require. Obedience, that's a different study. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's one of my favorite titles 
almighty, all powerful. Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Probably one of my favorite verses in the first chapter of Revelation. I think that it's very profound. Let's look at it again. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation. John says, I know that it's difficult right now. And not only am I your brother in the Lord, which speaks of a familiar relationship, a family kind of relationship. So it's a, your brother, you know? I, your brother, but not only am I your brother in the good, but I'm also a companion with you in the bad. Right now, most people believe that the church is going through the second wave of persecution that it experienced since its inception some 30-odd years before. We're not going to get into the details, but most scholars would agree that the book of Revelation was penned by John around in the 90s, 95 AD. 97 AD was the third wave of this persecution where, where Christians were being herded and slaughtered in mass. They were being paraded down streets, lit like candles so that they could, uh, people could see at night street lamps made of human corpses who were all Christians. The church was suffering, suffering greatly. And the reason that, that John is on the island of Patmos is, is for what? What does he say? He, he says why. I'm on the island that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Paul was exiled to Patmos because of his stand and his testimony in Jesus. And for the word of God. And he says, I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. But I want you guys to know that I am a companion in your suffering. And for those of us today who are going through a difficult season, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know life can be hard sometimes. You have companions right beside you, right around you. You have brothers and sisters in the Lord who also suffer that persecution that you're suffering. You have people that have, have been able to understand the curveballs that life can throw at it. And sometimes you just need a brother like he did to come up alongside and put your arm around somebody and say, you know what? I know what you're going through. I'm a companion in your suffering. I'm a companion in tribulation right now. We don't really understand. And I'm, I, don't, I don't like it when pastors try to make people feel guilty about what kind of persecutions people go through comparatively throughout history. I'm not a fan of that. You know why? Because God knows what you're going to go through. God knows what, what you're going to be put up against, and God is going to take you to your limit. And the same amount of faith and standing and truth and trust in God that you are going to be required to demonstrate through your life, they demonstrated in the arena. And maybe it sounds like I'm kind of dumbing it down or making it less than it is, but, but the truth is that God gives each a measure of faith and he wants you to operate in that measure of faith as you go through life. Not comparing yourself to other people. Not feeling bad that you don't suffer as much as others. 
You're going to be, your level of faith is going to be sufficient for the amount of suffering that you have to go through. Just use it in its totality. God, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm struggling right now. And think, people were being thrown to lions in their arena. How come I can't be like them? Listen, God wants you to be able to persevere through the tribulation that you're going through now. And he's going to be sufficient to do it for you. So they're probably in the second wave of persecution. He's saying to them, guys, I know you're my brother. You're my companion. I'm your companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Big picture guy. I like John, big picture guy. This isn't just about this, the here and now. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about how things are all coming together in perfection. And there's that P word, the dreaded P word, and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Here's these seven churches. What does the number seven in the Bible represent, church? Completion. So without getting into all the different theological discussions, if we look at the seven churches being a completion of the churches represented on earth at that time, we can say these churches represent God in his fullness, how he wants them to represent him. And he's going to have to address some things with them. Two were good, two were bad, three were mixed. If you'd like an easy way to remember it, two were bad, two were good, three were mixed, mixed reviews that God had to kind of steer back in the right direction. He says, I, again, want to remind you, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head And hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now let's look at this representation of Jesus. And there is a way that we can break down each part of his body that's listed. But there's actually a couple, few different ways that that we could look at it. But let's look at it through a unique perspective tonight. We know Jesus is coming. We know that that um, when he returns, he, he is going to return not as a meek and mild Jesus that was crucified and died and buried and rose again, but he's going to come back as the judge of the earth. And then we see uh, he, the, he sees the seven golden lampstands in the midst of the one like the Son of Man. So in the midst of the seven golden lampstands is Jesus Christ himself, which 
I hope that Jesus is in our presence on the regular. He's in the presence of the churches. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, it says white as snow as in, to illustrate this, but, but we see different elements come into play here describing Jesus. Snow can be a very powerful thing. You look at these avalanches that have to be controlled with dynamite blasts so that they come down and they don't completely decimate and wipe out entire villages and towns. You can get snow that, that you know, is feet and feet and feet high and it, and it can bring devastation if you're not prepared for it, which I think is true of Jesus as well. You want to be prepared for the Lord because when he comes, he's going to come quickly like an avalanche. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. We are experiencing unprecedented forest fires in the United States this year. And anybody that experienced forest fire can tell you that it's one of the most devastating, incredible things that can happen to you. My sister and Grace, one of Grace's best friends growing up, both lost their houses. Her friend this year her sister last year, and I remember going up to the site where their house stood and talking to her sister, and her sister still suffering from the effects of what it put her and her three babies through and burned everything down to the ground. You know, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be like a fire. The first judgment of God was like a flood. It was a flood, a literal flood. And then afterward, the promise is God says, I will never flood the earth again. And he's not going to flood the earth again. But what is going to happen in the end for that judgment? It's going to be in fire. And it's going to consume. Jesus is the all-consuming fire. His feet were fine like brass. Many people would point out that brass is a symbolic metal of judgment. But you have to look where it's at. It's on his feet. I think if we thought about brass and judgment, maybe we would more closely associate it with fists, right? Fists are an offensive weapon. And I don't think that, I don't know how appropriate that is to picture Jesus as offensively beating people with his fists, even though I kind of like it as a guy. But, but it's more like his feet. Wherever he goes, there's no stopping him. There's no stopping him. There's no resisting him. Brass is uh, uh, strength, I'm sorry. Bronze is judgment. And if refined in a furnace, as if refined in a furnace, hard, strengthened, and his voice is the sound of many waters. We had some friends that went to uh, a cross-country road trip this year. They got to travel. They sold their house. Their family that, that fellowships with us in this church here at Paradise, they sold their house. They, they went and they bought a travel trailer and they drove from Vegas to, how many states did they go to? Like 20, huh? They drove to Virginia, but they hit the coast. They drove up to uh, Niagara Falls. They went to Mount Rushmore. They came, they did a big circle to experience as much as they could, stopping all along the way to look at all the different places. Really incredible. They've got five kids, had a blast. They didn't want to come home.
Yes, thank you. <laughs> you know me so well. But I, I would like to go to Niagara Falls sometime to go and experience just this. Have you ever been to a, a large waterfall or a large, fast-flowing body of water? It's, it's, it's incredible. And, and what happens in the thunderstorm seasons or the monsoon seasons in Las Vegas, especially this year, is like every other day, my phone's like, bleep, 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 flash flood warning, you will die, you will die. Number one natural disaster killer, flash flood warnings. And I, it freaks me out every time. Yeah, initial, and I'm like, oh, what's happening? Oh, it's just a flash flood. Somebody might die. Would you please quiet down? <laughs> many waters, the strength and power. And when the many waters come through, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. There's no going back. Creationist scientists believe, as we believe, uh, as evangelical Christians, that the Grand Canyon was not formed over millions of years of erosion. They believe that it was after the Great Flood and it was formed very quickly. Could you imagine the mighty waters that formed the Grand Canyon? And then it says that the, the voice of the Son of God is like of many waters. Just... He had his right hand, seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp, double, two-edged sword, the word of God. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, rightly so. Rightly so. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And everything that we've read so far, especially the description of Jesus, doesn't it put into perspective he who is to be revealed? This is he, revelation. The revelation is of what? Is of Jesus. And he is going to be revealed to us. And it kind of, going back to our P again, it gives us a little perspective about who's talking to these seven churches that we're going to look at next week. This is who's talking to them. He's in their midst. He has the seven stars in his hand. And we looked at these lampstands and these stars and we wondered to ourselves and, and we said, what is the seven lampstands and what is the stars and how do I understand this? This is so crazy. Here's your hermeneutical principle 101, theology 101. If you ever read something in the Bible, you cannot take it and isolate it. That's called eisegesis. It's taking the text and isolating it to be its own entity. You have to take and compare it and contrast it to the rest of the Word of God. And I'll never forget this class. It was one of Tommy's classes. This class that we were in, and, and we were sitting in class, and, and we were going through a portion of text, and somebody said, well, look at this verse, and I, Pastor Tommy, I don't understand what this means, and why would he say that, and why? I don't, I don't get it. How do I figure out what this means? And he's like, uh, well, let's continue reading. And he read three or four more verses, and the answer to the question was right there in the text. 
And many times we make things bigger than they have to really be in simplicity, just working through the whole word of God, seeking his face and receiving revelation. So with that in mind, what are the seven lampstands and the seven stars? Does anybody know? How do you know that though? How you read ahead, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven stars are the seven spirits or the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, when we talk about angels or spirits, what we're really talking about is the, the, the spirit of God is one. You're baptized in a one baptism. You received one spirit. But there can be different representations of God through those. So when people say, like, we're the only church, or we've got it together, nobody else does, and they don't know what they're doing, and I always get a little nervous. I'm like, wait, you know, like, God is bigger than, than one methodology, Methodists. <laughs> God is bigger than one denomination. God is bigger. God is not a little C God. He's a big C God. And there's different expressions of him and his spirit through different churches, just like there is for us, right? We as a church, there's an expression from the influence of God through our lives and through us as a church that hopefully is represented in our community. And we go around and we see different churches and we talk to different people and there's a different representation. And we're about missions. We, we believe God was a missionary God. He had a mission heart. And, and we want to plant churches and support orphanages and, and go to Israel. And, and I was rebuked by a pastor locally here in town the first year that we started the church because uh, I said, hey, we're getting ready to go on a mission trip. He said, you as a new church have no business going on the mission field. This is your mission field. I said, well, I'm glad that you have a conviction about it. So go ahead and do that. But God has called us to be a mission church. And if missions is ingrained into the culture of our church and starts from the very beginning, then it's going to be stronger and better represented in the end. And with all due respect, this isn't something that I have a good idea about and want to do. It's something that, the God is, that God is leading us to do as a church. So there's a different expression. There's a different expression in the local community. There's different expressions for churches, you know, that, that want to be represented at every single political event. Do I think that that's the best use of our time and energy? I'm not going to, you know, alienate you by saying yes or no. I'm going to say that we have a vision and we try to follow it as best we can based on the leading of the Lord for us individually as a church and how that fits in the big picture. And it goes back to the gifts. Not everybody has the same gift. Everybody has different giftings. There's different emphasis for giftings. And these seven churches are going to represent the same area, but, but God's purpose being fulfilled through that church in a multiplicity sort of way. Not just like, hey, each one of you seven guys, you better be the same, and you better get it down and get it right, because this is how I do things. You'll find that God does things differently through different people, because God doesn't like to be put in a box. And then by us saying that God does things a certain way and he has to do those things, then we are saying that we're the authority over how God works and moves. And we will make that discerning 
uh, choice or decision or expression, and he is not, which God is obviously, his authority is above us, and he will move according to his word and in that structure, but we don't have the business to tell him how we want him to move or how he should move. He's faithful. The seven golden lampstands, the seven churches, one of the churches that my favorite church that we're going to get to in a, in a couple weeks, but my favorite church um, talks specifically about this. And for you tonight, just, just as in conclusion to, to wrap it up and to think about it, if, if, if there's seven lampstands and the lampstand is represented uh, in our church as a whole, that also means that, that you're a lampstand. And, and what does that look like for you? You're not a light in and of yourself. A lampstand is just the thing that bears the light. It holds the light. It holds the light up so that, so that the darkness can be pierced. So, Lord, what do you have to speak to your church? What do you have to teach us? There's going to be many things. And maybe you'll identify more with one church than with another. I want to encourage you to be open to being blessed by the Lord in the good things that you're doing, but I also want to encourage you to be open to the Lord, to be corrected in the things that you're not doing well. Because he is the one who, his eyes are like fire, his hair is, and his head is white as snow, his voice is like the rushing of many waters. He is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. And if, if we want to learn from anybody there's nobody that lives up to his example for us and how he has us to be his witnesses on the earth. There's nobody else besides him that can do that the best way. So again, I know that we're going to be blessed. There was a, our, our introduction to um, the, the book of Revelation. I did go over quickly, and I want to cover, again, verse 19. Um, the book of Revelation is broken up into three sections. We're going to focus primarily on the second section. It, in verse 19, it says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Chapter 1 is the things that John has seen. He records this like he's instructed to. The things that, um, I'm sorry, the things that are seen is the first chapter. The things which are, are chapters two and three. This is the present time. that He's speaking to the seven churches of Revelation. And the things that will be are chapters four to 22, which he addresses the apocalypse in its true revealing state. Okay, so let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this study tonight and for being able to come back together after a blessed morning in your word and to be able to spend a little bit more time in your word and to hear from you. And God, we pray that, that you would use us. We pray that you'd speak. We want to be submitted to you. We want to be in a place of, of our desire and our passion is to walk in obedience and not just have things to sacrifice you to try to appease you. you. You want all of us. You want all of our heart. We want to give it to you. And, and we want to see you revealed, God, to this world. 
not just in the finality of that revelation like we're, we've been looking at, but just that you are coming soon and that we can do it consistently now. Be revealing you until your ultimate revelation, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name.